Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Wednesday, June 14th, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing well, but as we were saying before we started recording, there's been a lot of winning in the last week, so I don't feel like there's been anything particularly noteworthy on my side to dwell on. No, it is Champions Week. We've got all the regulars to talk about. And then, of course, I think it would be cool to kick off the show with a little Canadian content. Shout out to Nick Taylor with an electric eagle putt to break a 69-year drought nice of the RBC Canadian Open. And it was an awesome visual, an awesome angle. And then Adam Hadwin comes out of nowhere with the champagne and gets smoked by a security guard. Great tackle over the middle, breaking up the play. And uh, I did hear that he apologized for putting himself in a position to where the guard felt he needed to tackle him. It's just a classic Canadian move, right? Of course. And I'm sorry for him that he had to apologize. And I'm sorry for the security guard uh, that he's been made a national discussion topic as such. Yeah. And I'm sorry for the preamble here as we jump into the true content of the podcast today. And and Max will kick off the show with another Canadian champion, Jamal Murray and the Denver Nuggets winning the NBA finals in 2023. Well in hand and well established. Like I don't think there was much of a question that they are the undisputed champs of this season. They went tw- 16 and four on their playoff run the only other teams to have done that i i can't even oh i I lost it now but there's only two other teams who had a record the warriors done like more impressive than that didn't they go like 16 and one one i think that was the one year they went 16 and one and then i think one of the lakers teams also went 16 and four okay like Kobe uh, Shaq Lakers. Yeah. yeah. That's a pretty elite company. Yeah. And some people will say uh, they played an eight seed, a four seed, a seven seed, and an eight seed in Nonsense. each of those rounds. But those were teams that you had to beat. And I mean, the Lakers took down a two seed and then they took down the Golden State Warriors, who were the defending champs. They deserve to be in the Western Conference Finals. The Miami Heat took down Milwaukee and Boston on their way to the finals. Like, really, really tough competition. And the Nuggets just rinsed everyone. Uh, and and what more can you say about Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, Aaron Gordon, KCP, Bruce Brown. Michael Porter Jr. finally arrived in this series, not with the jump shot, but with the attacking off of cuts and off the dribble, uh, playing passable defense and pushing the ball in transition. One of his, what I don't even know, maybe he had three assists in the whole five games. One of them was a timely push in transition kick to a Murray corner three. He just had a impactful game, which you couldn't see, say about the first four games. And, and really when you dial it all the way down, it comes back to Jokic who got off to a slow start in foul trouble only had three points and three rebounds at at halftime nearly and then just took over in the second half him and murray with the the screen and roll action uh finding folks open and and also creating his own shot in the post just backing dudes down with ease and and 
the Nuggets had that offense going. And then on the other side, basically shut down everything the Heat wanted to do. There was no play that Miami ran in that second half where they got an easy look. It was just fantastic defense by Denver. They smelled blood in the water and uh, and a really impressive finals run that cements the legacy of a couple of those players on that team. Yeah, I think, first of all, that it's nonsense. Like the Heat win is unimpressive. I think it's just the dominance the Nuggets had over the Heat and the way the Heat team had thrived in earlier seasons uh, or earlier series disappearing in that final series led people to like call it an easy win. But I mean, that last game seemed anything but easy. I'll confess, like my interest in the series did drop off once it became pretty clear the Nuggets were going to be the NBA champions um, and the matches were more like a exhibition of an incredibly dominant and impressive playoff team rather than like a real who's gonna get it uh neck and neck thriller um but there's no doubt this like heat team deserved to be there and this nuggets team was just a whole level better than that Mm -hmm. Uh, and one other thing I wanted to throw in that really impressed me about the 16 and four run is in a couple games, it felt like they also defeated the refs, uh, particularly in games three and four against the Lakers, uh, game four and game five against the heat. Like, Oh, maybe you don't feel as strongly about it, or maybe you're like seeing different signs in the water, but get refs prolonging series in the NBA kind of feels like game management in the NHL or it's a pretty open secret that that is an active force and factor in these playoffs and like something analysts to discuss Mm -hmm. and like a tangible part of the game. I I wouldn't say is it's as blatantly obvious in the NBA as it is in the NHL that they just purely choose when to turn in on and off penalties and will balance things out and will just put their whistles away in important moments, all that stuff. But it's also not indisputable that the NBA doesn't want or that the NBA wants these games to go longer and are going to nudge things in the right direction, right? And they tried to have Scott Foster in game four. And again, watching that game, I wouldn't say there was a definitive edge one way or another in calls there was a stretch where the nuggets got in trouble quite a few times but uh Jokic gets away with a lot as a bigger player um and then in game five i think the most egregious and obvious call that everyone was talking about especially if miami had come back and won the game was the jimmy butler kick into aaron gordon's nuts that got called as a shooting foul on aaron gordon then got reviewed and upheld so at certainly a shocking moment um i can't wait to get the two minute report so we can see what the explanation was on that call but it definitely lingered and that was just this a testament to how great this nuggets team is again that they were able to overcome that as well right the the quote-unquote agenda now Max, I know you're interested, Dwayne, in this series, but you missed out on 
DeAndre Jordan minutes in this one. I heard good to hear. <laughs> Shocking stuff. And and honestly, like not the worst minutes ever. That's reserved for Cody Zeller, who played a total of 61 seconds in game five and instantly was a minus five. And they had to yank him very quickly. And and yeah, it just showed like if Bam wasn't on the floor for Miami, he was probably the most important for, person for them in the series. If he wasn't on the floor, it was they were they were down instantly. And did Jokic average a triple double in this series? I'm not close sure. enough, if not close enough. But like, yeah. just to say, I feel like he's made a lot of the best big men defenders in the league look ineffective. Mm-hmm. And the Zeller thing is just a good opportunity to highlight like there yeah. are still levels to defense against this like all time offensive menace. And like, yeah, holding him to just a triple 30 point <laughs> triple double is actually like an example of that level and defensive workmanship. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've like hesitated whether to like confess to not watching this series because it feels like a bit of a blaspheme against like the unique offensive magic that Jokic and this Nuggets team has built in this playoff run uh, and i want to take nothing away from that the lingering thing here now leaving this series is what it means for the legacy of one jimmy butler who has now mm. come close on two occasions with herculean efforts through three rounds but he was quite simply bad in this game for 80 percent of it uh seemed more timid and less aggressive, looking for his shot, was willing to pass up the ball and watch actions occur from his teammates, was missing shots short. I'm guessing he has plenty of injuries that were nagging at him. He didn't want to give any excuses in the post game, which I respect, but it, it, it's obviously something that was bugging him, and we'll hear about it at some point. But he disappeared for the majority of that game. Then scores nine straight points, including the questionable three-point shooting foul, and then has the back-breaking turnover where he drives in, loses his balance a little bit, tries to pivot out. He didn't have the fall away, wasn't in a comfortable enough position to try and shoot it, so he tried to kick out to the corner, and Caldwell Pope was waiting there. Stole it with two hands, not even a deflection. He just straight ran into the path and caught it and started going the other way. And with... The play of Lowry and Bam and Max Struess finally showing up in game five. You really needed Butler to have one of his average Hemi Buckets games and he he couldn't come through. And and that was the major reason why Miami lost that game. And and it's just it's not gonna look great for him because he's had so many awesome playoff moments but no championships to cement himself in that top tier group. And and that might've been his best chance. I, did, I feel like he had a better shot against the Lakers than he did against these Nuggets. Um, I don't have any revelatory takes on Jimmy Butler. I think like it's not a secret and it's a known factor that he doesn't have a play style that makes it easy like the easiest his offense gets is skillfully bartering free throws and being a very efficient free throw shooter like that's the easiest way jimmy butler can put up 25 30 points on a night the 
athleticism, the layups, the contested mid-range game, like that's difficult offense to come by. And it, like, it's not smooth. It's not easy. It's not Steph Curry's ridiculous three-point shooting. It's not LeBron's strength and skill in the post. It's not Jokic's strength, skill, and passing in the post. Like all of these guys, it's not Kevin Durant's like height giving him unlimited free mid-range shots. Like all of these guys can make incredibly impressive buckets and plays in tight times against really hard red-nosed defenses. But they also get a lot of easy free points. They have like styles of offense that just can drop like 15, 20 points pretty easily and then go earn those big buckets when they matter. Uh, and like Jimmy Butler just doesn't have that style. And as good as he looks as a mid-range shooter at times, the fact that that three-point shot isn't there and the fact that that mid-range shot isn't consistent ju just means like it's never going to be easy for him. So like in those moments in the playoffs where he has those big games, particularly against Milwaukee, I think we just temporarily put him in a conversation in a tier that he simply isn't. And that's what leads to this uh, disappointment or like withdrawal hangover moment at the end of the series. Uh, I think like it's also worth noting he like didn't have that any of those games against the Celtics either. Uh, so like this isn't a sudden finals disappearance part of his legacy. Yeah, ran out of gas, and he's probably playing the freshest, best defender suited to guard him, right, in Aaron Gordon. Just in terms of a, a, a size of a player who can absorb a lot of Jimmy's physicality, and then also being taller and fresher from not having to have a ton of offensive workload and only having played, what, 6, 11, 15 games up until that point, and Jimmy was pushing 20. So just that that gap in in freshness as well as the size made it difficult to create and they were trying to switch him on to Jamal and KCP and those guys were obviously not doing the best job but holding their own and again making him work uh and in, in a way that not other teams had had been less successful in doing so Gordon also a savvy and like veteran enough defender to not fall for too many free throws. And I did mean to mention Butler's ankle, which like certainly had never no time to heal since he twisted it in the Knicks series. So now that we are done making excuses for him uh, after bashing him for the previous five minutes, we will say what a run and a congratulations to the Miami Heat on Absolutely. Eastern Conference champions, a gutty, uh, impressive run that almost ended in the play-in tournament and then of course the denver nuggets are your champions and set themselves up for potentially a dynastic run right Jokic is 28 gordon's 27 murray's 25 porter's 24 right like they are all that that core is set for the next two three years to make more runs and Jokic has propelled himself on a trajectory into top 50 players of all time and definitely even higher than that when all is said and done. And so it's going to be very, very fascinating to see what teams do next season to adjust, right? There's always that counterpunch that comes from teams on the Warriors small ball kind of spread lineup 
and the Rockets spread lineup and then going into the Raptors where they kind of had six to seven players that could all create their own shot. And then you had the Lakers with just the intimidating size, right, of the front court, having AD play the four with the enforcer center at the five. And then Milwaukee having their twin towers, right, their size. Uh, and then, of course, going back to the Warriors last year with a little bit more of the shooting and, and spread offense. So with Jokic as the best player, our team's going to load up on centers that play passable defense or centers that are a little bit more bullyish. And then how are they going to attack him offensively? It's just, it's fascinating to see what sort of adjustments we'll make. Brooke Lopez is a big name that is up for a contract this season. And I think he likely signs in Milwaukee, but that is a big name to get if you're a team that's maybe trying to compete against these nuggets. Like I said earlier, the way Jokic makes offensive magic look so effortless and easy and the way his style of play is so conducive to longevity and health has me so excited to watch what comes next for what he accomplishes. And I think Mark Jackson should have to sit down and watch every one of these playoff games before he votes for MVP next year. Yeah, um, 100%. Also, as you said earlier, like absolute shout out and congratulations to the Miami Heat. When you look what they've accomplished, not just these playoffs, but in the last three years, uh, first overall and Eastern Conference finalists last year, NBA finals trip uh, two years before that. Like that's a really impressive res or that's the best resume in the east over the last four years um so it's been a successful and impressive effort from the squad without a doubt yep shout out to them shout out to the nuggets looking forward to seeing the parade highlights tomorrow as they come through but we will move from one serbian champion in Jokic mm -hmm. on to the next here i'm now only one more open away from making my bold prediction come through for 2023 which was three i think i said two for for novak he has two. Oh, so then i definitely said three but could he do the slam well now you've spoiled the end of this segment um <laughs> the short we'll answer wrap we'll wrap around the short answer is why not mm -hmm. um yeah, so Novak Djokovic, if it wasn't for the Golden Knights, this podcast could have been called back-to-back -back Joker Talk. Anyway, the other Joker in question has won his 23rd Grand Slam and third ever French Open with a straight sets victory over Kasper Ruud in the finals. So let's talk a little about the match. Um, it was basically a classic Novak macho where... If you had never watched a match of tennis or a match of this era of tennis in your life and you only watched this match, you would think in the first set, wow, this Novak guy is not that good. Uh, in the second set, you would think, oh, this Rude guy is not playing that well. And then, then in the third set, you'd go, that felt like a bit of a lucky win, but he's a decent player. Um, and maybe you'd feel that way if you ignored the way he does this time after time after time after time again an uphill start and then once he just breaks his opponent down a little mentally a little physically efficient and optimizes his game for the opponent it just looks downhill and made easy so tight first set honestly like not a set Novak that necessarily deserved to win the way he played the majority of it 
a lot of unforced errors, the most he made in any set that match, also the most points played in any set, to be fair. Um, but it felt like Rude stood tall in the rallies, like he was able to dictate and take control of more of them than you'd expect. It felt like more errors were coming from Novak. He was able to break back after dropping his first service game of the set. And then it went to a tie break. I know it was a little bit of a storyline, all French Open, that Novak had won every tie break and hadn't made an unforced error all tie break. And sure enough, this tie break after a back and forth set that involved errors from Novak saw him take it 7-3, I believe, zero unforced errors, uh, never really in doubt, like five points into that tie break. And then he comes out and breaks Rude's first serve of that second set. Um, like you've got to think Rudd was just in a bit of disbelief. I did notice like somewhere from the tiebreak onwards, like one read on Rudd's game, something that absolutely broke him last French Open was his backhand, like known as the attackable point for him, like the way to take an advantage in the rallies or reset them. It's certainly something Rafa being a lefty with a ridiculous forehand was able to pounce on in the French Open final and Alcaraz definitely weaponized it at times in the US Open final as well. But it's looked pretty good, this French Open. It held up against Zverev, who has quite a good backhand, one of the better ones on tour. And early against Novak, it looked like passable. And he was able to go up the line with it at times and take control back of the rallies and stand tall when Novak attacked it three, four, five times in a rally. But then from the tiebreak onwards, it was like Novak broke the confidence there, started getting more unforced errors, and then more unforced errors off of Rudd trying to avoid the unforced errors and like change for, to go down the line or go for a drop shot that he just wasn't in a position to quite get. Um, regardless, having broken the first service game of the second set for Rudd, Djokovic won 80% of the points he served including going 15 for 17 on his first serve, Rudd was able to obtain no break points. So Novak just front ran beautifully and gave him no chance in that second set. Third set, like it's funny, post-match narrative felt like Novak ran through it. But when I was going back through the stats, Rudd played a good third set. Like his serve held up. He only offered up one break point, which he was able to save in the third game at 1-1 of the set. Uh, he was able to get a lot of his first serves in and get them in rather fast. And it got all the way to 5-5 like that. I mean, Novak's service game was even better. Uh, Rudd won just five points all set on the serve. I think it was four, actually. And it was five in the second set. Um, and then 5-5. Novak breaks him to love. Uh, three fantastic returns, four fantastic returns, and three winners by Novak. Uh, but he just, something clicked in him, and those little moments, those biggest moments of the match, he was so good, as he so often is, and made it look effortless. Uh, the last bit of stats I wanted to convey, just to give a feel for the match. So that first set, Djokovic had 15 winners, 18 unforced errors. Rudd, also 15 winners, 17, one fewer unforced error. Second set, Djokovic, 15 winners to seven unforced errors. Rudd down to seven winners and eight unforced errors. As I said, by far the most points played all match in that first set. 
but the third set, Djokovic still managed to come up with 22 winners and just seven unforced errors again to Rudd's nine winners and six unforced errors. So again, he played well that third set, just six unforced errors. Uh, only one in the game Djokovic did eventually break him in. Um, but when you look at it from the big picture, it, it does mm -hmm. look like an effortless win for Novak. And a pity for Rudd, who is now 0-3 and has never beaten, taken a set off Djokovic in his life and has won just one in his three Grand Slam finals appearances. The one other testament I want to give to Novak is I think those winners went up in the second and third sets, the third especially, because Rudd stop, stopped running for balls that he probably wasn't going to get. And that's a testament to what Djokovic did to Alcaraz. And also, I think, a testament to Rudd's self-belief. He was still planning in his mind, I think, for a fifth set when he stopped going for those balls, knowing that if he got there, he'd need his legs. So what that means for Djokovic's legacy, oh, now the all-time leader in ATP Open Era Grand Slams with 23 and also the all-time leader in career Grand Slams. He's now won each of the Slams at least three times. The French and U.S. tied at three. Uh, I can't. I meant to look, dig up this stat, and I couldn't find it. But since turning thirty, his record in Grand Slams final is just absurd. Um, he, like he already had so many different things. He has the Masters titles. He might get there for ATP Finals titles. He has the surface uh, versatility, uh, a whole bunch of advanced metrics and stats. Um, but the fact that he made Grand Slam such a focal point in this post-30 part of his career and the way he's made a science out of something that quite frankly is a miracle winning just one grand slam and made it look easy to do again and again and again in so many different different aspects of his game and his life which are most certainly intertwined um it's not over though like the legacy takes another step we continue to hype about novak oh but as you said at the start of this topic the question now is can he do the calendar slam wimbledon only a month away a tournament that he's won like five i lost count of how many times he's won it in a row it, every time year i've watched it he's won it um i think it's like five or something uh yeah there and as i mentioned the serve unreal in this game against Rood and the serve return um, unreal and Wimbledon a tournament all about the serve so it's no coincidence there that when you put those two together he's the best on tour <laughs> so I'm not gonna skip ahead to the question of the U.S. Open but he is 100% the favorite for Wimbledon uh, I don't know if you have any remarks before I transition into grass court season I don't otherwise other than uh he made me look foolish last year and now he's making me me look like a genius this year yes. with the bold predictions <laughs> it, it's i'm i should write down all the times i'm wrong because i'm starting to become more and more upset that i don't gamble um but some of the odds on when I look at some of the odds in certain things, and Djokovic is the most recent example of that, um, especially when 
Carlos Alcaraz was a big favorite over him. Uh, I think Djokovic was like a two to one underdog in that match. I could not make an argument for my life as a nervous Djokovic fan for this to be more than 50-50 even odds. And at that point, if I'm betting on him to beat Alcaraz, I would have been happy to bet on him to win in the finals and be champion. And those would have been pretty odds there. Uh, so maybe I should get in on that before Wimbledon even gets underway. A couple storylines as we're like three, four days, maybe longer, depending on how you want to count it into the ATP grass season. The first story of which oh, is one Sir Andy Murray has won six matches in a row on grass to kick off the season, taking part in an ATP challenger tour last week and winning it. And he's currently one match underway, a challenger tour in Nottingham right now. I read, saw somewhere on Twitter saying that with that 125 points from last week's win, he's secured seeding. Uh, the tweet was expressing doubt about how that would be mathematically possible with the current ATP rankings as they are. Um, so you heard it here, maybe, that Murray has already secured himself seeding for Wimbledon. He plays tomorrow morning, so really not before this podcast actually airs, I think. Uh, the results from his second round match will be in. Uh, two 250 level events going on in the tour. Stuttgart Boss Open, which had my attention for the participation of Matteo Berrettini, Nick Kyrgios, uh, the last two Wimbledon finalists to lose to Djokovic, and Denis Shapovalov, who lost to the semifinals against Djokovic two years ago. Uh, all three lose in the first round. Maybe not too surprising considering the two top seeds are in fact Stefano Tsitsipas and Taylor Fritz in this event. Uh, and in Hertogonbosch, Netherlands, at the Libema Open, one Milos Raonic makes his return to the ATP Tour, uh, a full return feeling with the first round win underway in that event, Daniel Medvedev and Yannick Sinner will be the two top seeds. I think Raonic would play Medvedev in the third round if they were both to advance. So those two storylines to keep our eyes on, always a very short grass season. So we put a bigger microscope than at any other point in time over the 250 level tours as we don't get that many of them. So we'll be checking in on that quite keenly as the month of June goes on. But with the last eight minutes to wrap up this podcast, we have one more set of champions to get to. Oh, the Vegas Golden Knights blow out the Florida Panthers in what felt a little cathartic to me uh, and a fitting end to a show of dominance this series. Who would have thought when they were expanding six years ago at the draft, seven years ago, I guess, because the cup run came six years ago, mm. how quickly their first uh, Stanley Cup championship would be earned. It's not that hard, guys. What are you doing no. the rest of the league? Apparently so. They, I mean, the expansion draft definitely put them in the driver's seat to create a strong team, but they didn't have the above and beyond talent. And then the second argument to that is there are only six players remaining from that original team that was drafted. Uh, and and it just fantastic job of team building by the Vegas Golden Knights and, and 
say what you want about some of their tactics in previous seasons where they are quick to move off of people. Uh, they, they treat it like a cold, hard business, and it works out for them here this year with a dominant Stanley Cup Finals win. 9-3 to three was the final score of Game 5, and they just abused the, bruised and abused the Florida Panthers. We're the bigger team, the stronger team. It was evident that Florida could not establish the same bully mindset as they could in the first three rounds. And I guess, yeah, like you said, it's that simple for a team to go out and just get a couple of really strong two-way scorers and then fill the rest of the team up with world beaters, with with big boys, right? The massive size all the way up the defense core and, and in the forward core and the smallest guy on that team, Jonathan Marcheseau, wins the Conn Smythe with 13 goals in his last 15 games after starting the playoffs with no goals uh, in, in the first couple of games of the first round. Aiden Hill outplayed Sergei Bobrovsky, who was all the talk of the town coming into the finals. He made a ridiculous glove save about uh, pretty early into the third period that just kind of capped off a fantastic run for him in the entire playoffs and phil kessel gotta shut our boy out eating hot dogs there we go talking back saying that when he was in toronto no one believed in him three times stanley cup champion now hard. since he left yeah. hard to do anything but feel good for me yeah happy for the thrill uh and then of course the next day the injuries come out matthew kachuk had a broken sternum is that bad? Sounds bad. That's this bone right here. And yeah, for those of you listening, that connects your ribs together. You don't need those, do you? That's it's how you get a collapsed lung. It's how you get a cardiac arrest if you get hit in the wrong spot with something like that. Just really not great when you have something fractured in your chest cavity. It can be really mm. dangerous. Apparently, he needed help getting out of bed for his pregame nap before game four played in the game for a little bit and of course that no chance you're risking your life going out in game five so he didn't play for understandable reasons and then Aaron Eckblad uh who went through a I think he missed an entire season after getting hurt uh two years ago and he fought through a broken foot and a strained oblique and I think there was one other injury it, it's all gonna come out here but the Panthers, man, they they played an intense style of hockey. They were warriors all throughout. Have to give them congratulations, but just came up short again to a better team. And that party seemed pretty electric when you only have to leave the arena and walk down the street to get to Vegas. <laughs> More Normally teams take a flight. They're already there. And I imagine we won't be seeing them for the next 48 hours until they pop up in the parade or walking out of the desert. I was reading some coverage of it this afternoon, just talking about how pre-legalized sports gambling, it was really seen as a risk endeavor by the NHL and something that not a lot of leagues were willing to dip their hat into trying and no pun intended, it has paid off in spades for them. Mm. And Las Vegas has so quickly uh, managed to associate itself with a winning culture, which kind of stinks to say, but does fit with the city and what you associate it with. 
Yeah. And as as we did with the Miami Heat, got to tip our hats to the Florida Panthers, uh, even more impressive in some ways than the Miami Heat, uh, taking out this league all-time historic Bruins in the first round, taking out the Leafs in five, the Canes in four. Um, and then that's just a testament. I mean, the injury card probably more relevant here, as you said, um, but an incredibly impressive run ended even more impressively by the Golden Knights. And there's not much more to be said other than, again, like I said with the NBA, fascinating to see what sort of adjustments we're going to see coming up. Free agency the first week of July will lead to a ton of movement. And of course, the NHL draft with Connor Bedard headed to Chicago. Where will the rest of the kids go? Looking forward to that and seeing the teams make their adjustments. Are we going to see the league go back to more beef after having these small, skilled forwards start to dominate the last few years? Are we going to see the bigger players take control back with the success of the Vegas Golden Knights? Vegas is a city. Congratulations. The Raiders, not great yet, but who knows what we'll see there. The Las Vegas Aces, of course, the defending WNBA champions. We know all about that. And then, of course, they might have a baseball team and basketball team on the way if uh, LeBron James and this crappy owner in Oakland have uh, anything to say about it. And it's just going to keep growing, isn't it? Yep. Yep. The NHL cashed in early on it, and And other teams will as well. I imagine they'll get MLS in there at some point. Maybe that'll be the team Messi ends up owning. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. Senators sold for $950 million. Are we thinking that's a lot or a little? That is significant for a market like Ottawa, and it's the highest total an NHL franchise has ever been sold for. Yeah, Um, I mean, the value of a sports franchise has just incredible i mean there's something so sick about the way we're just seeing everything as assets uh i'd like this is com- coming in a bit from school but like artists have like sold massive amounts of their publication catalog uh, like art being an asset is nothing new art auctions have existed for hundreds of years um but when you couple it with the housing crisis that's going on little would art you call it terribly stupid or stupidly terrible though <laughs> It's all terrible. It's everything. Yeah, well, it's terrible and stupid. Terrible. Uh, hopefully this podcast has taken your mind off the terrible, stupid things for a minute or two. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, Sports Next Door signing out. You get to the station, there's this crazy sound. Hey, man, this ain't no fishing town. Yeah, they're fishing, but that ain't all.